Uh, if you guys have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 10. We got a lot of ground to cover. We're going to be looking at Acts 10 verses 23 through 48. This is kind of a three-part series where we're looking at the Peter and Cornelius narrative, the Jew and Gentile dividing wall of hostility getting torn down, and uh, in one body, Jew and Gentile being reconciled to Jesus. So we've got an awesome text to cover today. A quick recap, if you were here last week of Acts 10, 1 through 22, we covered, uh, we were introduced to a man in Caesarea uh, named Cornelius. And what we know about Cornelius is he was kind of a pagan Gentile, if you will, and the way that Israelites in the first century viewed Gentiles is they viewed them uh, like they had spiritual COVID, for lack of a better term, right? Like, you got to keep, you wouldn't associate with them, you keep six feet apart, wear a mask, and there was contact tracing if you were exposed, right? Like, legitimately, like, you have to quarantine for two weeks before you come back to the synagogue, so on. And so forth. Uh, and Gentiles were anyone who was a non-Israelite, a, a non-Jew. That was kind of the distinction there. So Cornelius was uh, not just a Gentile, but he was also a Roman soldier, a centurion, meaning that he had a uh, hundred other soldiers in his command. Centurions were uh, usually wealthy, socially prominent. They're usually paid, uh, his, uh, his studies would show or, or history would, would tell us that they were paid at least five times uh, as much as the regular soldier was paid. So Cornelius was a man of, of wealth and influence in Caesarea. And what that meant from the uh, Israelites' perspective, if he was working for Rome, is that he was the oppressor. He was the enemy. Uh, Rome subjugated and heavily taxed God's people, the Israelites, and uh, there was animosity there for sure. And so that's Cornelius. And even still, the scriptures say uh, that Cornelius was a devout man of prayer and alms, and that he was actually well uh, respected in the Jewish community in Caesarea. He wasn't a full convert to Judaism. The way N.T. Wright, I loves it, describes Cornelius's kind of journey, faith journey, is that his nose was pressed against the glass, and he was looking from the outside in. You know, for you hockey fans out there, when you're on the glass, your nose is pressed in. Like, you're not on the ice, but you're kind of looking. That was Cornelius's perspective. And what we saw last week is that the, uh, an angel went to Caesarea to visit Cornelius. And gave him some instructions, said, hey, there's a man named Peter staying in Joppa, 31 miles south on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, that I want you to send servants to, and you're going to send him back. And you guys are going to meet, and some stuff's going to happen, okay? So Cornelius sends two of his Gentile servants and one Roman soldier down 31 miles south to Joppa. Meanwhile, in Joppa, you have Peter, a Jewish Galilean fisherman who his entire life has never eaten anything unclean and has always kept a safe and manageable distance from Gentiles, uh, has a vision. He's praying in the middle of the day. He has a vision. You all know the vision, the sheet. They call the pigs in the blanket vision, right? All the clean and unclean animals descending from heaven. And the command of the Lord is rise, kill, and eat. And Peter, I love Peter, right? He's, he's wrestling with the Lord even in the middle of a vision. And he says, never, far be it from me, O Lord, I'll never eat bacon, no matter what you say, right? And uh, only took the Lord three times to convince him it's okay to eat bacon. Anyways, um, and uh, the Lord says, don't you call common what God calls clean. Don't you call common what God calls clean. We see what Peter knew what that meant was uh, the Lord was talking about the Gentiles. Gentiles aren't clean. Uh, my gospel, my love, my spirit is for them just as much as it is for you. So Peter has this vision, and then all of a sudden, after he's kind of processing this vision, all of a sudden he looks down, two Gentiles and a Roman soldier, and uh, he's staying with Simon the Tanner, and, uh, and the Lord says, the Holy Spirit says to Peter, you open that door, do, don't you dare hesitate. That's what it says, don't hesitate, Peter. You welcome them in, and you're going to go with them. And so all that to say, that's where we're at in our text today in Acts 10, 
23, is Peter has welcomed them in, the Gentiles and the Roman soldier, into Simon the Tanner's house in Joppa, and he's about to travel northbound to Caesarea to visit Cornelius. And the main thrust, as I was praying into this message, because I have, you know, close to 30 verses to cover, I was like, Lord, what's the main thrust? What do you want for us the transit family today, and I felt the, the impression of the Lord say this. I felt this in my heart. I simply want my people to see others the way that I see them. I simply want my people to see others the way that I see them, because if we could see others the way that Christ sees them, I really believe some powerful things would begin to change in our lives, and it begs the question, well, how do we change how we view those outside our tribe? And I think a simple answer is this, is we need to take off kind of our old sinful shades and put on some gospel shades, okay? Before you snicker, let me, let me unpack that, okay? Recently, I made the beautiful transition from, anyone here love cheapo sunglasses? Call them cheapos? Yeah, yeah, yeah every hand goes, yeah, I love cheapos, right? You can lose them, you can break them, they can dent, all that stuff, no big deal, not a big of a deal, okay? I have a pair of cheapos, the, both lenses are, maybe you see me wearing these, both lenses are cracked. Uh, usually they're smudged, they're really dark lenses. Everything when I wear those is, 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 is crooked and, and dark and all that stuff. But recently, someone here in the front row here uh, gifted me a uh, $300 pair of Oakleys. Come on. And you're saying, Nick, I've never seen you wear a $300 pair of Oakleys. And you're like, yeah, I'm a pastor. So <laughs> those bad boys stay in my car. Those are my driving shades, Okay. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? In my 07 Corolla, I got shades as expensive as my car that I'm rolling with, okay? Um, when I put those, man, when I put those, those bad boys on, it's like going from standard definition to high definition, right? You know what I'm talking about? When you make the leap from the cheapos to the Oakleys, like, bam! Everything that was once dull and dark is vibrant and beautiful, right? And tragically, the lenses that we often view humanity from uh, are lenses that are given to us by social media, or the news, or frankly, our sinful flesh and the devil himself, right? And so what we do when we put on these shades given to us is we put people in certain camps, right? Oh, you're in this camp. You're, you're this. You're X, Y, and Z, right? Therefore, I put you in this camp, and then I get to cancel you. And so those are kind of the lenses. We'll call them the, maybe the cancel lenses. Um, and in contrast to that, the lenses that the Lord himself wants us to view humanity through are gospel lenses. Don't take my word for it. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 16. For the love of Christ controls us, the NIV would say compels us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Now, verse 16, from now on. So he's preaching the gospel. He says, from now on, the response, therefore, is this. We regard no one according to the flesh. And so gospel lenses are this. If Jesus Christ died for all, then he loves the all. And now we ought to view the all not from our sinful fleshly perspective, but from his perspective of sacrificial love. Meaning this, every single person in your tribe or outside your tribe, every single person you lay your eyes on is someone Jesus Christ in love viewed as worth laying his life down for. Every single person, breathing air, Christ died for all. Therefore, the all 
are loved by him. And therefore, the way we view them, whether we agree with them or not, whether they're in our tribe or not, is with the love of Christ, that Christ died for them on the cross so that they could come to know him. Erwin McManus has this quote, when you and I become followers of Jesus, we forever forfeit the right to pick and choose whom we will love. We, the enemies of God, reconciled by the undeserved grace of God, we forfeit that right. And so the only camp that we can place people in are the camp of worthy for Jesus to die for camp. And the response then is that we don't cancel humanity. We intentionally lean in and sacrificially love our enemies as Jesus has commanded us to do. So those are the gospel lenses. And my hope with uh, God's word is that he would implant his heart and his vision of humanity to us and that we would begin to view others the way that he sees them. And that's a simple summary of our text, and we will dive into our text here soon, is, is what God is doing in our text today is he's ripping off the skewed lenses of Peter and the Jewish community, and he's replacing them with his gospel lenses. And the history of the church and the history of the world was forever changed because of Acts 10, okay? So the three, the three scenes we kind of have in our text are the, the gospels demonstrated to the Gentiles, and then the gospels declared to the Gentiles, and then the, the gospel is fulfilled. So let's pray, and then we will dive in. So Father, we just come uh, before you so grateful, Lord Jesus, that in our sins, while we were your enemies, Jesus, you didn't cancel us, God. Thank you, Lord, for the joy that was set before you was sinners redeemed and forgiven and brought back home to the Father's embrace, God. And because of that joy set before you, you went to the cross and bore our sin, took our curse upon your shoulder so that we could go scot-free. Our sins nailed to that cross so you remember them no more. So today, for those in Christ Jesus, we, we, we say thank you, Jesus. We celebrate the fact that uh, of our Redeemer and our redemption that's in you, God, that we stand before you just. We, we come boldly before your throne because we know that uh, our sins are covered and that we're clothed with your righteousness, Jesus. So I ask, Father, that you would come have your way with your word, that Holy Spirit, we open up our hearts. Whenever we open up your word, we, we, we <laughs> woe to us if we don't open up our hearts, yielded to you, Holy Spirit, and what you want to do, God. So Holy Spirit, if there's conviction that needs to happen, bring conviction. If there's repentance that needs to happen, bring about repentance, Holy Spirit. If there's love that needs to be poured into our hearts, pour love into our hearts. If there's comfort for the disillusioned and those who are uh, uh, heavy laden and burdened, pour the love of Christ into their hearts, Holy Spirit, today. And I just pray that you would have your way. Father, that you would, you would glorify and magnify your son, Jesus and that I would decrease and be forgotten, and we would leave here worshiping and praising our Redeemer and the beautiful work that he's done, reconciling all of humanity back to him in one body. And we love you, and we bless your name, and uh, we pray this in your name, and all God's people say, amen. The gospel demonstrated verses 23 through 33, 23 through 33. The next day, Peter rose, and he went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. And when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. 
But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear that all that you have been commanded by the Lord. And uh, that ends verse 33. The impression we get here, I couldn't help but chuckle as I was preparing sermon earlier this week, is like we just walked in through this text into like an awkward dinner party, right? You know what I'm saying? Have you ever been, I'm sure all of us have been invited into spaces, and this is your first time in church, maybe this is you, uh, where you've been invited to a space where you're like, man, I don't, this is weird, right? Like, I don't know what the culture's customs are. I don't know what the rules are. What can I say? What can I not say? What do I do with my hands? You know, like, you just don't know, right? Like, and I think that's what's happening here as the Jew and Gentile worlds are colliding. There's this kind of like junior high dance, awkward, like socially awkward, like what do we do type of thing. And to prove that point, look at Cornelius's icebreaker, right? You, got, you have a centurion, a man who's wealthy and socially uh, prominent, and he bows down and worships a, a, a Galilean fisherman, Right? Like, that's his iceberg. You're like, and Peter's like, I mean, Peter's kind of used to people like bowing down and like worshiping. And Peter's got to be like, stop, like, don't do that. You know, like, it's not about me. And then, and so that's what Cornelius does. And then on the flip side of that, Peter, um, Peter's icebreaker is calling out the elephant in the room, right? He goes, hey, you all know this is like really weird, right? Like, we're not supposed to be doing this. This is, this is socially uh, uh, taboo and unlawful, right? Like, just, just, I mean, the vibes you get from this, at least I don't want to read into the text, but my imagination is that. But I think even historically, this is super awkward, super awkward for both groups. Like Peter and the Jewish believers that came with him in the Gentiles' house, uh, Cornelius brought like uh, his entire household and his friends and his relatives, like it's all packed out, right? And, and they're like, I've never done this before. This is weird. What is, you know, what are, my, what, what are so-and-so going to say? All that stuff. And so all that to say is this, is that yes, the moment where Jew meets Gentile is super weird and awkward, but what if it's also one of the most beautiful demonstrations of the gospel in all of Acts, right? What if in this moment, as Jesus Christ of Nazareth is presently taking in this scene, he's grinning ear to ear, at the, at the awkwardness between these two different ethnic and religious groups coming together, right? And I think Jesus, I think when, when we start, um, I think as a church, maybe Jesus is inviting us to embrace the awkward a little bit more, that we as followers of Jesus need to press in and we're the ones who are to be transcending what is socially, culturally taboo and going into those places or inviting people into our spaces who look different than us, who believe different than, than we do, like all that stuff, right? And so I think Jesus is kind of grinning ear to ear because, because what did we look at last week? Who set up this dinner party, right? Jesus did, right? It was Jesus who set this up, okay? And I think as he's grinning ear to ear at this moment, I think too, if I were to use my imagination, I think that Jesus is wiping away tears of joy from his eyes as well because in that awkward space, he is watching the beautiful work of reconciliation, take place before his very eyes. Former enemies, hostile for centuries, becoming eternal, blood-bought brothers and sisters forever, becoming family in this moment. 
This now is a Thanksgiving dinner that Peter and Cornelius just walked into. That's what's about to go down. Ephesians 2, uh, 11 through 16. The work of Jesus Christ is not just reconciling individuals to the Father. He's reconciling humanity to each other in one body to the Father, okay? Don't take my word for it. Ephesians 2, 11 through 16. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he, watch this, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing, vanquishing, destroying the hostility. And so what Ephesians 2, 11 through 16, what the cross teaches us, is if we were to ask the question, what kills ethnic and religious hostility between the Jew and Gentile in this moment is the cross of Jesus Christ. Why? Because the cross of Jesus Christ completely levels the playing field. Scriptures say there is no one without, all have sinned, all have sinned, Jew and Gentile like, and fallen short of the glory of God. And, and, and what happens in this instance is when Cornelius, a Gentile, bows down in reverence to Peter, Peter doesn't say, you Gentile dog, yes, bow down to me because I'm a Jewish God. He doesn't say that. And, and Gentile dog, that was the, the ethnic slur that the, the Jews would use to Gentiles. He, say, he says, you, what Peter is saying, he's saying, you're not a Gentile dog. I'm not a Jewish God. He says, I too am a man. I am a man. And the Son of Man has gotten me to the Father. And the same, the same Jesus that got me in the door is the same Jesus that gets you in the door. It's not a matter of ethnicity. It's not a matter of culture. It's not a matter of the color of your skin. not a matter of politics. All that stuff. It's about Jesus Christ of Nazareth and what he has done. Romans 10, 12 says this. I love this. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Who gets the riches of the grace of God poured out to them in Christ Jesus, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord to be saved. People of every nation, tribe, and tongue, those who call on the name of the Lord. And this is the, the gospel demonstrated in a meal, Jew and Gentile coming together in one body. Soon we're going to see the way this ends, both reconciled to the Father, filled with the Spirit of God. That's a beautiful demonstration, the gospel displayed. And then Peter declares the gospel. And the message that Peter proclaims to the Gentiles when Cornelius asks him to share, the message he shares to Cornelius and his household is this. He doesn't give a long list saying, oh, oh, Cornelius, you need to get circumcised and you need to follow these dietary laws. You need a good synagogue membership and, and how, how are your quiet times going, all that stuff. That's not what he says. He says, essentially, you need Jesus. The gospel declared, verses 34 through 43. 
So Peter opened his mouth and said, truly, I understand God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is, is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism of John that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth, the Holy Spirit, and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness, I love this, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And one of the most beautiful aspects of Peter's gospel proclamation is he doesn't give a list of action items right, that Cornelius has to do. He talks about everything that God, through the gift of his son, Jesus Christ, has done. That's the gospel. God's unmerited, while we were still sinners, grace to us by sending and crushing his son on our behalf. And if salvation, Romans 6 would say, is a free gift. It's all, it's all wrapped in a bow. And the Lord, and this is, oh, I'm going to hit myself. I don't want to share this yet. Oh, I'm not going to share it yet. Okay. From verse 36 on in the text I just read, from verse 36 to 43, God is the subject of all the actions. God is the subject of all the actions. Here's five things that we see Peter in Peter's gospel proclamation. God sent the message of peace through Jesus in verse 36. God sent the message of peace through Jesus. So Jesus came declaring that the kingdom of God is at hand. And that message is a message of peace, which is this, the well-being of relationship between creation and creator, between created beings and their creator. Shalom, harmony, the work that Jesus Christ came to bring was the restoration of all things back into the original tent that God had in the garden. Shalom, harmony, everything, everything relating to each other the way that God intended. Creation to man, man to creation, man to man, man to each other, and most importantly, man to God. Reconciliation, peace, harmony. That's the centrality of the work that Jesus Christ came to do, to usher in the kingdom of God, which is the kingdom of shalom, the kingdom of harmony, the kingdom of restoration. And our job as Christians is to pull down that heavenly reality in, in the Lord's prayer. Lord, uh, as, as it is, you know, in heaven may it be so on earth, right? And we get to partner with Jesus of bringing that kingdom of God into this sin-cursed, demonically infiltrated world. So God sent the message of peace through Jesus to, we see secondly in verses 37 through 38, it was God, the Father, who anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and with power. Peter uh, tells Cornelius, and uh, his household, that at the baptism of Jesus, the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus like a dove and empowered Jesus for his earthly ministry. So there was this Old Testament messianic expectation that the Messiah would come through the line of David. And historically, key leaders, key, key kings in Israel's history were anointed with oil. 
right? King David, anointed, right? And so there's this messianic hope that the Christ, the Messiah, meaning the anointed one, would come and liberate God's people who are under oppression, okay? And what Peter is saying here is that Jesus was the Messiah that the prophets foretold of. He was the Christ. And the anointing he received was the anointing of the Holy Spirit that empowered him for his earthly ministry. And this is what we see when we ask the question, well, what was the purpose of the anointing? In verse 38, Peter tells us, after the baptism, Jesus went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Uh, Verse 38, that is just one of the most beautiful descriptions of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, of our Savior. He went about full of the Spirit of God, doing good and healing, healing all those, whether it be uh, uh, stuck slaves to sin, physically afflicted through sickness or paralysis or death, or those who are legitimately demonized, afflicted through demonic oppression. Jesus, if you read the Gospels, the eyewitness accounts of the life of Christ, this is exactly verbatim verbatim what he did. The Holy Spirit came upon him with power. God was with him. And he went about doing good and setting the captives free and demonstrating the peace of God, demonstrating the kingdom of God coming in the lives and hearts of humanity, setting them free from the yoke of slavery, the tyranny of the devil. That's the work that Jesus Christ came to do, was to destroy the works of the devil and usher in the kingdom of God. And a quick side note, verse 38, if you're looking for like life goals, if you've ever like worried, instead of like tattoos, you're, let's talk about tombstones, okay? Like, like if you ever want something uh, to live your life for this being engraved on your tombstone, let it be said, maybe of us, or I personally would love this written on my tombstone, Nicholas Paul Mudrizo went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him. Amen? Amen. Okay. Third thing we see is it was God who raised Jesus from the dead after he was put to death on a tree. Verses 39 through 40, you cannot proclaim the gospel without proclaiming the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross for the sins of man. And and what's interesting, and what Peter mentions here is a tree. He died on a tree. And this is what Galatians 3, 13 through 14 teaches us. Christ redeemed us. He rescued us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Jesus became a curse for us on the cross. For it is written, curses everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. That Genesis 12, Genesis 15 promise given to Abraham that through his offspring, Through his lineage, the entire world, the nations would be blessed. This is the blessing. It was Jesus, his his substitutionary work on the cross, that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. It doesn't stop there. There's a second so that. There's a second so that in Greek, Greek, that's a hina, hina clause. My, my, My professor in seminary always teach me, whenever you see so that, you better slow down. And whatever comes on the other side of that so that is critically important. That's what it's leading up to. Everything prior is leading up to on the other side of the Hina clause, the so that. There's two so that's. So that in Christ, the, 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 the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, to the nations, and so that we might receive the promised Holy Spirit by faith. And this is what we see. This is what we see in Acts 10. The gospel doesn't just stop with the forgiveness of sins. It, it, it's fulfilled with the filling of the Holy Spirit. 
That's the gospel is that we get God. We get his presence. Galatians 3, don't take my word for it, so that we might receive the promise, Holy Spirit. What was separating us, the veil has been torn, separating us from the presence of God, the Holy of Holies, that veil's torn, and uh, our hearts are atoned for. Boom, the Spirit of God indwells us, indwells us, okay? So Peter proclaims uh, the cross of Christ, the lamb that was slain for the sins of the world, and then he proclaims Jesus' victorious resurrection, which was confirmation that for those who put their trust in Christ, that sin, death, and the devil no longer have any claim on their lives, but those are all conquered foes. Sin has been defeated. The devil has been defeated. Uh, disease and death forever defeated, and Christ reigns in victory because he's resurrected, okay? And then the fourth thing we see moving on here is that the, the fourth uh, action item of God in the gospel is what Peter says, and God chose the apostles as witnesses to proclaim his resurrection, verses 41 through 42. And what Peter is saying to these, to these Gentiles that are all gathered, I'm sure the, the house is packed. Cornelius was, you know, he was well-connected, right? And, and he just had this crazy vision. He packed the house out. And uh, what Peter is saying here is this. This is what he's saying. I, I hope I know what he's saying. i got to check my notes. This is what he's saying. The resurrection, he's saying we're eyewitnesses. He's saying, this is not, listen, listen, this is not some philosophical fairy tale. This is not, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not just wishful, hopeful thinking. What Peter is saying is it's grounded in history. He's telling them, he's saying, I've seen a man dead for three days rise from the grave and I ate and drank with him. I had a filet of fish sandwich with him. Is what he's saying. And it, and, it, and it ruined the apostles in the best sense of the term so that when they're in Acts 4, standing in front of the Sanhedrin, they say, to the point of death, they're saying, we can only testify to what we've seen and heard. I saw him rise again. I've seen it with my own eyes. He is not in the grave. Christ is risen from the grave. And they would give their lives for that testimony. They would lay it down. It's not wishful, hopeful thinking. It's rooted in history. The apostles would give their lives. It ruined them. In the best sense of the term, the apostle, the apostle Saul, the apostle Paul, uh, his life was affliction and hardship and suffering. But it was all worth it because he had encountered the risen Jesus. He couldn't unsee. He couldn't go back. They could only share what he's seen and heard. And so it's rooted in history. It's not wishful thinking. He's, there's an empty tomb. There's a, role, a glorified Savior. And, and then it begs the question, well, what has Jesus done? Where is he after his resurrection? And lastly, what Peter says is this, is we see that God, after Christ's resurrection, God appointed him to be judge of the living and the dead. Verse 42, that after the death, the crucifixion of Jesus, his burial and his resurrection, what we know to be true, what we've seen in Acts, is Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, where he currently sits enthroned as both Lord and judge over all the earth. This is not my notes, but I just want to read Ephesians 1 real quick. So tarry with me as I find it. Ephesians 1, I love this. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation, the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Watch this. 
May this be our prayer today, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might. Here's what I'm getting at. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, that's the resurrection, and then seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule, authority, power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the age to come and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all there is a king seated on the throne and his name is jesus and he is lord and he is also judge romans 14 9 through 12 verses will be on the screen For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. It is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God, Christian and not, that we'll stand before Jesus and give an account for how we stewarded the grace of God that he's lavished upon us in his son. And so one, we know that there is a just judge on the throne. That is, that might be terrifying news for sinners. There's great news that there's pardon at great cost to the father, crushing of his son. But there's a judge who's gonna make all things right, right? When, when, when we see this in our own nation, we see this in other nations, when, when a nation lacks justice, There's an outcry, there's outrage, there needs to be justice. Jesus would not be perfectly righteous and perfectly loving if he was not a just judge. It would be antithetical to the nature of God to sweep sin under the rug. It would be completely antithetical. And you all know this to be true because, you know, back in the day, I don't know, five years ago, I don't know what the stats were, but billions upon billions of dollars worldwide, people paid to go to movie theaters to watch Liam Neeson enact horrific justice on a bunch of Eastern European gangsters, okay? So people pay Boku bucks to see Liam Neeson take justice in his own hands, and there's no outcry. There's no, how could he do that? How dare he? We're all cheering him on. Yeah, get the Russians, you know? Like, I'm Russian, so anyways, I, I'm Ukrainian. Anyways, like, we all cheer him on and buy some popcorn and candy, and we watch Taken 1, Taken 2, Taken 3, Taken 15, you know? There's a, you know, all this stuff. And then, and then the... the, the, the And then all of a sudden, when Jesus is described as judge, all of humanity freaks out and say, that's not just. When in fact, he's the only one who has the right. He's the only one who has the right. That's what this says. That's what this says. All of you will give an account to God who is the judge. You and I ain't the judge. And so what that does, it helps us loosen our bitterness towards other people, helps us release judgment that we're holding against other people. We're saying, as for me and my house... I'm going to be held. I'm going to have to give an account to Jesus about how much bitterness and how how much unforgiveness I held in and didn't lose over people who maybe legitimately wronged me. But as for me and my house, I I got a judgment day coming and I got to stand before him. And listen, it's nothing but the blood of Jesus, right? Like we can approach that day confidently and boldly as Christians knowing that my book is written and my name is written in the book of life in red ink, never to be removed. Amen. Amen. And then there will be some mysterious eternal rewards that there's a ton of debate about, about how we stewarded what was entrusted to us, the parable of the talents, right? Jesus taught that, okay? 
And the beautiful news in verse 43, and this is where where Peter finishes his gospel declaration, is this is what Peter says in verse 43. Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Man. To whom much... To who much is forgiven, uh, forgives much. Whom, you know, like that, that, that parable just came to mind of, uh, for those of us here who are not unaware of our weaknesses and our history of failures and shortcomings, knowing verse 43 to be true in our lives, every day, both past, present, and future for all of eternity, that our sins are forgiven is the best news on the planet. The one person it matters most with, the judge of the living of the dead, that offers is available to you if you've never received the forgiveness of your sins. The one judge who matters the most, your creator and your savior, forgiveness before the judge on that day is offered by his blood, by his sacrifice. doesn't have to be yours. And so all that to say, move back to my notes. Peter's gospel proclamation is the good news of all that God has done to save humanity, both Jew and Gentile. And there's a quote that I was going to share, but I'm going to share now. And it's Reinhard Bunke. He shared this quote. I'm going to butcher it, but I couldn't find it. But he says something to this effect. He says, all other religions, all other worldviews, you labor and you toil and you set the table and you prepare the feast to, to please your gods. You labor, you toil, you sacrifice and just say, oh, would this be worthy? You know, you, that's what you do, right? And what he says is in the Christian faith, it's God himself who sacrifices his son and prepares the table for you. It's an empty chair. An, um, an empty chair extended to all of humanity who wants to feast at his table. It's the grace of God. It's his love. And what does that feast look like for us? What does the gospel fulfilled look like? What's the meal that God prepares? It's his presence. It's the gift of a son. The gospel is not just the forgiveness of sins. The gospel is the forgiveness of sins so we can be reconciled to God and that his spirit can fill us. The gospel is that we get God for all of eternity. Heaven is God's presence. Psalm 1611, in your presence, there's fullness of joy. Fullness of joy will be, uh, is what we'll be living in in heaven is because we'll have the fullness of God's presence in our glorified state. And we see this beautiful picture. My last scene, though, my last point here, the gospel fulfilled. Verses 44 through 48. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked him to remain for some days. One of the most beautiful things in this text, and I'm not reading into this, every, every commentary scholar that I read makes note of this, is while Peter was still preaching, the Holy Spirit interrupted him. There was no, there was no call to the altar. Peter didn't get a chance to go, okay, now um, well, I'm wrapping up here with everyone's heads bowed and, and eyes closed. If, if my message resonated with you, see, uh, raise your hand. I see that hand, Cornelius. I see that hand. Okay. You know, like, there was none of that, right? The Holy Spirit just, boom, rushed into the room and fell upon them. 
I love that. Before Peter could get to any of that, what's happening here? Why is that? And I was, as I was praying into this, I feel like I had this kind of aha moment. Is I think this is what's happening. There's a lot that's happening here. But even though the Jews that were with Peter, and even maybe Peter himself, maybe they were initially still hesitant in embracing these Gentiles. Guess who wasn't hesitant in embracing them? God, the Holy Spirit. There was no hesitation. There was a full sprint embrace. When it says the Holy Spirit fell, right, there's a lot of, the, like, the, the Spirit of God is filling his temple, right? Jesus uh, has, has uh, we're going we're gonna to close with Ephesians 2. Uh, uh, that, that's what we are. That's what the church is, the, 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 the body, the, the temple, the dwelling place of God where his Spirit dwells. And so when the Holy Spirit comes upon them, it, it is, yes, the filling of the Spirit, and also, too, the heart behind it, the heart of God, it's, a, it's, it's the embrace of heaven is what it is. It's the embrace of heaven. And the impression I got was uh, the prodigal son, the story of the prodigal son. You all know it, Luke 15, right? The prodigal, like, you know, curses his father, takes all of his inheritance early, lives a life of reckless living, and, uh, and repents, and he turns, and the prodigal returns, and he's kind of halfway there, and the father is looking for him from a distance. He's been separated from the prodigal for far too long. And the way the story goes is, is, is the father runs full sprint at his still reeking of alcohol and all this stuff, the pig slop son who's coming home. And what we don't know historically is that that was socially taboo. You have to gird your loins before you run because that father might have been... You know, uh, I don't know how to say this without, he might have been guilty of streaking, okay? It's, it's, it's literally how the history would go. As he runs, given, given the clothes that they would wear back then. But at the surprise, the, 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 the love, the joy, the excitement, the father comes running in love for the prodigal that's coming home. And I believe as Peter was talking, the hearts, before they even made, I believe the hearts of those Gentiles already turned. And the Holy Spirit knew it, and the Holy Spirit comes. And so what if in the parable of the prodigal son, the father doesn't just come and give a side hug to the prodigal son, but imagine with me the excitement and the joy of a father who lost the son, that son's returning, coming, and full out, you know, tackling the dude, embracing him to the point that the guy's on the floor, and they're both weeping tears of joy. Because the time of separation has ceased, they've been reconciled. And so when the Holy Spirit falls, when omnipotence falls on you, I bet you all these Gentiles were on the floor. And as they're on the floor, it's Acts 2 repeated for the Gentiles. This is the Gentile Pentecost. They're speaking in tongues. They're praising God. Jesus just said, hey, nice to meet you. We're going to be friends forever for all of eternity. The Spirit of God filling his temple, rushing upon them. The, the, the embrace, the hug of heaven. No hesitation, none from God, the Holy Spirit. And that's what's crystal clear in our text, is the unambiguous love and endorsement by God of a people group that God's people had historically canceled. Confirmation was the Holy Spirit fell. This was the Gentile Pentecost, and I'm wrapping up here. Band, you can come forward. The response of Peter and his friends was this. They were amazed and they were shocked that they had received, it says in the text, that they had received the promised Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them. These Gentiles, this was the tension, and we'll still see this tension played out in Acts. They didn't have to change up their diet 
They didn't have to repent of pork. They didn't have to get circumcised. They didn't have to attend the synagogue. They confessed faith in Christ and his lordship in their hearts, and they received the Holy Spirit. And as they did, they were reconciled in one body, and Jew and Gentile in this moment became one body, brothers and sisters for all of eternity, right? Dividing walls of hostility torn down. Ephesians 2, 17 through 22, we'll conclude with this. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to you who are near. For through him, we both have access. Talking when we says both, we both Jew and Gentile have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into what? A holy temple in the Lord. In verse 22, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, that we just get to respond to your love and your grace and your mercy. That you've prepared a table before us, God. Of Christ's broken body and his shed blood to cleanse us forever, to adopt us as sons and daughters, to lift the curse of sin off of us, shame and guilt forever gone, sins remembered no more, white as snow, the scripture said. That's how you see us, God. Forgiven, yours, reconciled, brought home. And thank you, Lord, that the gift you also lavish upon us is your presence, the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so, Holy Spirit, I ask now that you would come and minister to the hearts of your people. Let them feel your embrace. For those that are crippled and bound in shame and self-hatred and condemnation, would you lift that today? Your still small voice shatter the lies of the enemy off of their lives today. And for those here today that have never tasted and seen your goodness, maybe they're like Cornelius, they're searching. They've been searching all over for joy and for life. Eternal unrest in their hearts that they've been searching for. Would today be the day of salvation, God? Jesus, you said in John 7, come to me, humanity, if you thirst. And I will give you rivers of living water, an unending stream of joy in the presence of God in your heart, in your soul, in your mind. So I pray that for those that are searching, they're seeking, they're thirsty, they wouldn't feel condemned. They wouldn't feel uh, shame and guilt, but they would receive the free gift that you offer to them today, Jesus Christ. They would put their faith in you. They'd ask you to forgive them, the judge, of the living and the dead, to, to forgive them of their sins, that they would place their trust in your sacrifice for their sins, not their, not their perfection, not their righteousness, Lord Jesus, and that you would call them home, God. Call them home and fill them with your spirit, God. So we come before you grateful. How else could we come? You're a God who's done so much for us already. And Lord, I ask too that you would give us eyes to see humanity the way you see them, Lord God. People of 
uh, different nations and tribes and tongues or political backgrounds or stances or views or different views on gender, all that stuff, would we be enveloped in your love? And would, through the lens that we see others, Lord, whatever, wherever, wherever they're at would be the way you see them, Jesus. Let that be said of us today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.